What's going on, everybody? This is Michael Zakond here. And Simran Sandu. I'm your friendly neighborhood entrepreneur. He's Sean Puri, and we're here to give you the best business podcast you've ever heard. You know, after the feedback from episode one and all the Sean Puri comparisons, I decided to embrace the scruffier look today. <laughs> Dude, no the, shame. The Twitter post was so funny. When it got like <laughs> 40,000 views of me telling, telling him when you were Sean. And then I posted on threads. And some kid was like, oh, I love Sean from <laughs> MFM. I can't wait to listen. Um, so, Nick Sharma comparisons are also welcome. Well, that's the next tweet. Okay. That's, that's that's It's all about hacking other people's audiences. <laughs> and how best to hack someone else's audience? Pretend you're them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, this show is the Entrepreneurship Podcast for Young People. We built it to create the world's leading knowledge archive for young entrepreneurs to learn from other young entrepreneurs. And I don't even think the audience of the show is necessarily limited to like young people trying to do big things. I think older folks as well are interested in learning how like the scrappiest, most innovative new Zuckerbergs are going out and building their business in 2023. So I think there's a, a lot of audience for this show and being top 100 in the charts already is uh, a good, good sign. Yeah. I mean, like, look at why we started this, right? I wish we had this guide when we were building our company. And so hopefully this podcast leaves you feeling inspired or amped up to build your next revenue generating business. And I think based off of the feedback we got from episode one, we've taken a good step in the right direction. Put down your Bezos, everything store, audiobook, and get plugged into the Our Future podcast with Mike and Sim because we're about to sauce this game up. Tell us what's on the docket today. Yeah, so on the docket today, we have my friend Seamus. He is 23 years old wow. and runs a software implementation firm that makes millions and millions of dollars per year. So essentially what he does is he goes to businesses that are going to be using either Salesforce or HubSpot and sets up those platforms to perfectly suit the needs of that business. Because what Seamus told me is HubSpot and, and Salesforce, they're literally the language of business. They are the operating system for how all business is done. And there's a massive opportunity in the market to educate people inside companies on how to use them and just like set up the software, no code, point and click to help these companies best extract the value from these incredibly complex, but insanely valuable software platforms. And I think Seamus's background is also something that will resonate with a lot of people, right? He wanted to be an investment banker. And I've had that same aspiration. Oh, sure. Maybe you did it as well, for right? Sure. There seems to be this common theme where if you don't know you're meant for entrepreneurship just yet, you want to go be a partner at Deloitte or you want to go be a partner at Goldman or some top tier, you know, M&A firm of some kind. Yeah, I think it's funny because he didn't even want to start a company. Exactly. Like, he's like, yeah, I want to be the old bear at Deloitte, like wearing a Rolex and getting my airline points and just being a partner in a big firm. The kid's 16 to 17 years old. He's obviously not like a regular guy. He saw Steve Jobs at a coffee shop at a Starbucks once and approached himself and said hello. I don't think Steve was super excited to talk to him, but he was like, I think he did shake his hand. So the kid had a chip on his shoulder. The kid was interesting and curious and whatever. Um, but he wanted to be an investment banker. So he took a lot of like ferocity to that, picked up the phone. He was calling all these iBanking firms in San Francisco. And they're like, dude, like you're too young. Uh, why don't you come back, you know, once you're an adult? Um, but he didn't stop and he kept cold calling banks at the age of 17 years old. And eventually this bank was like, Hey dude, like the SEC is not going to let us have you work on any financial models or like be in the teeth of our business. However, we are trying to set up Salesforce and we'll pay you $15 an hour. If you can learn how to use Salesforce and set this up for us effectively so that it can start adding revenue and drive value for our business. So what does Seamus do? 
He takes that $15 an hour instead of working in the movie theater. This time he's working for a prestigious investment bank in high school, and he learns Salesforce. So he generates his core competency in understanding the most ubiquitous software platform in the business world, literally the operating system, the language of how business is done on the internet and through different sales channels. And he becomes the youngest speaker at DreamWorks, which is Salesforce's like big industry conference. HubSpot also has one. I think it's called, uh, what is it called? Like Insights, they had Obama go speak at it. Yeah, all I know is they spend a shit ton of money yeah, yeah. on it. Yeah, so these yeah. B2B SaaS companies are loaded, right? Yeah. So it's probably a good industry to be in in the first place. If the companies themselves are valued very highly, right? There's probably a lot of value and demand for them. Um, and he speaks to like, I think like 100,000 people. And then he goes to Boston College and he was still working part-time for this investment bank in school. And they were like, dude, like, I understand you really want to go into iBanking, but like your competency is in Salesforce. Like you have all this clout and credibility in this industry, the youngest guy who's fucking around with Salesforce. Why don't you operate in that sector? Like you wouldn't have to start from zero. Like you're going to have to be a slave if you come work for us. So he's like, huh, maybe you're right. So he goes and he applies to Deloitte because they were the top Salesforce implementation firm at the time. All of these big consulting firms have a big software implementation practice, right? Where they're helping companies integrate. And uh, he gets into that track, like easy money, like he's super knowledgeable. He has the, he has the background. And then the pandemic hits, nine months, they delay his start date. And he's like, okay, well, I have 90 grand in student loans. I probably don't want to sit around and do Netflix. I am a hard worker. I'm a curious kid. I might as well try and start spin up, spinning up this business where I help other companies with their Salesforce practice. He ends up doing a million dollars in his first year. His second year, much more. So let's talk a bit more about like Seamus and what you think is interesting about his story. Yeah, I mean, I think first off is just the pure grit. The fact that he cold called all of these investment banks, even though the path that he hadn't decided at that point was he didn't he didn't want to be an entrepreneur, right? He wanted to be an investment banker. And so he had kind of this hutspot to go call up all these people. And then he found one person to give him a chance, right? That's all it takes to make the dominoes start to fall. Right. And so he comes in and he is essentially working on as an employee, right? And what you learn oftentimes is that as in a consultant or an agency or any other third party or vendor coming in to work with these companies, they don't want to fix all these problems themselves. They'd rather just find someone else to go do this, right? And so if I'm working for a company, all right, let's take Morning Brew, for example. If there's a problem here and I'm like, hey, let's go solve this. Um, internally, most times what would happen at almost every other company is they may not be receptive to the idea. And you may think, well, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a problem many other companies in this industry have. So I'm just going to go solve this, right? I'm going to make my own company and do this. And there's been so many phenomenal entrepreneurs that have started through that same exact path. What my dad once told me is yeah. the reason you go and work for big companies is so you can figure out how to destroy them. And that brings me to my next point, which is... Um, how Seamus used flexibility to his advantage, right? Seamus was operating in a, the software implementation market. Now, this space was dominated by larger firms and agencies. Now, what were these companies doing? They were charging, I think, tens of thousands, if not into the six figures for three-month engagement to look at your software and be like, okay, this is what you need. This is our statement of work, blah, 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 blah. Like a very rigid framework. And for a lot of small, medium-sized businesses that were using Salesforce and HubSpot, they routinely do. We know very well HubSpot focuses on the middle market. They don't have the budget to have a firm come in and do a survey for them, right? They want a turnkey solution. They want the problem solved. All these small, like, like only big companies are willing to spend months on like a small incremental change. But 
small to medium-sized businesses need to start driving value in much higher increments. Especially, and I think in this particular situation, what he had found was SMBs were spending $15,000 a year on Salesforce, right? And so it may not sound like a whole lot of money, but it's a pretty significant chunk of change, especially for a small business. And they didn't know how to best utilize that as a tool. Imagine every company buys a bicycle and no one inside it knows how to ride it. Like, I think as a young entrepreneur, if you can find an industry where there's already been a sunk cost at a company, they had to acquire a piece of software, they had to acquire a piece of technology, they had to acquire maybe a piece of hardware that needs maintenance, go in and be the guy who can be the expert on that. I think there's so much value for young people to develop some domain expertise in a certain subject or one one or another and just be the whiz kid. Like, Seamus told me that once things scaled up, they did seven figures in their first year. Um... He had an X amount of money in his bank, um, but he spent it all on hiring the sales guy. And the sales guy would go out, and Seamus was at this point very much still the technical guy who did all the work in terms of putting on the dance monkey show for his clients. Yeah. So the sales guy would get the deal, and then they'd be like, hold on, here comes the big boy. And Seamus would come and join in the Zoom. He'd hop on Salesforce in front of their very eyes and give them like a demo, like, this is like a whiz kid. He's fucking moving around. He's like pointing and clicking and all that stuff. And it's like, wow, we need this. We need really smart kids to help us with this stuff. And it's cheaper. Young entrepreneurs can be seen as like these whiz kids. And almost there's a mythical quality about being young and really good at something, right? Well, I think your company is really as good as your processes. And for Seamus, when it came to his entire sales process, he had effectively come up with a three-step uh three-step cycle or a three-step process, right? Step one, demo, and it's the experimentation. Let's get you in front of the product and the service and just get you familiar with it. Step two, now it's bombard them with the insights and the actual expertise. That's where Seamus comes in. In step three, now they feel comfortable. They understand how this can help them. Now you actually move to the closing process and build them, you know, do the whole contractual stuff and the things to get them onboarded. And so I think when you're a first-time entrepreneur, right, A lot of these things may seem daunting, but at the end of the day, what you realize is you can bucket them up in certain categories, right? You can always simplify and break things down, right? If you take a lead gen process, if you take a hiring process, right? Oh man, I got to go find this person and then I got to ask them the right questions and then I got to go filter if, you know, they're a good fit for the company. All of those can be put down into certain buckets and suddenly now it doesn't feel as scary. Formulas are awesome, but they're also really challenging, I think, for young entrepreneurs to set up, especially because a lot of a young entrepreneur's value in an agency is being extremely flexible. You have bigger players on the market who have rigid solutions and charge high prices. We're going to charge low prices and be turnkey and give you everything you could possibly need. So when we were talking to Seamus, he was saying that his biggest problem was scaling up a business wherein they were doing lots of different things and would be willing to help a company with whatever their problem was. And that's where the opportunity is. Yeah. There's a burning building and we'll just like, we'll figure it out. We'll like, just give us the money and like, we'll put out the fire, right? Like that's how it works. But that also comes with like scale challenges. But it's cool to see an entrepreneur and you believe in operations well. So does Seamus to have like a framework. But he also said that sales was the easiest part of this. Like he was operating in a bull market where everyone just needed to drive revenue. They wanted growth. They wanted growth. They wanted growth. I think that's something Seamus did well. There's two steps, right? One thing that he took advantage of was the fact that there was a lot of friction in the process, right, to get onboarded with one of these companies. So when Seamus looks at his competitive landscape, there were two ways to provide a unique advantage. One was the fact that other people in the space were forcing statements of work, right? They'd go through a lengthy discovery process, and then they'd force them to sign a statement of work. 
They find out that now the scope has changed quite a bit. Now they need to redo the entire process. Not only does that take a lot of time, but that's just so much friction, right? And so what he said is, hey, like, we understand your problem. Let's just get to work. The second thing that I thought was really interesting about him was that, to your point, he did go turnkey, and he wasn't just um, siloed off to one channel. It wasn't like we are the Salesforce partner. It was... We can be the Salesforce partner. We can be the HubSpot partner. But to your point, that brings huge challenges yeah. when you're trying to scale and operate. Yeah, I think what was also really interesting is he viewed the next extension of his business, like the, his newest business division, as almost like the same reaction as a founder would have to a startup idea. So the only time he ever lost a client was when he had a client that needed HubSpot integration, and he hired an external firm to kind of do that work for on behalf of his firm, and they were terrible. So he's like... Why would I have this firm doing that when I can just bring my own superior processes and business mind and do the HubSpot extension as well? So it was kind of like a light bulb moment for a founder who uses a product that's subpar and like, I can just do it better. And that's why he ended up expanding into HubSpot as well. And that's what made his firm different in that they offered both kinds of softwares. They do everything instead of just doing one thing, which is like what a lot of his competitors were doing. And I think it's really advantageous in all sorts of agencies to have a diversified model and a lot of different service offerings. Honestly, dude, I think it just comes down to the kind of business you want to build. You have two approaches, which is you can take a niche, one offer approach. We're just going to be the subject matter experts at one thing, but then you leave a lot of money on the table. Right. The alternative is you're a hybrid. You are this jack of all trades. You, we can do anything. We can throw anything at you and you can do it. But now you usually have to give up quality because you're not the expert at all of these things or at alternative, you could go hire a bunch of experts, but now you've increased your burn significantly is the most likely uh, scenario in this case. And you can get more money, but now the business is way dependent on you, right? And so this actually changes your uh, strategy on the playing board because if your end goal is that you want to exit a business, well, recognize yeah. that if the business is way too dependent on you to operate, it's going to be way harder to exit that business, and it's also going to be at a much lower multiple. That is a great way to <laughs> that is a great way to lead into an aqua hire situation, right? Yeah. Even in our case, right? Like our future is very dependent on you and I. But that is where if you come up with one standardized service and you can productize it, it really doesn't depend on you it's way easier to exit the business. And so you may lose out on money in the short term, but in the long term, it could give you a much higher multiple or evaluation when an acquirer looks to, to buy your yeah. company. And it's just more scalable in general. Yeah. The last episode I talked about like the best businesses for young people to like dab, dabble their feet in, and that was creating content yeah. and uh, starting an agency, like either or, or doing both, kind of like what we did. Um, but they both come with massive scale challenges, like agencies and bootstrap businesses that ca it, companies that cash flow well in general are very, very hard to scale. So it's a matter of picking your poison, I guess, in that do you want to do everything you possibly can to make as much money in the short term? Or do you want to build a defensible business that can potentially be exited one day? Do you think Seamus will be able to sell this business? I think he can sell years? this business, but I don't think the multiple is going to be very high. Well, yeah, it's an agency business. Yeah, it's a one and a half to three X multiple business, especially in this environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why product businesses can sell for so much like scalable productized businesses. And that's why VCs pour a bunch of money into them because they can scale fast and then get acquired because 
they're easily operable by another business. Well, what's interesting about Seamus is he feels he should have taken VC money to yeah. go scale this business. And for some reason, that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. I feel like it kind of did. Like, if he could have raised money for this, done a fancy pitch, at the end of the day, it was just an agency. Like, the WeWork guy was doing commercial real estate leases, raised a ton of money, and made out with a bag, right? Seamus could have done the same for his agency, scaled it to a very high revenue number with that venture money, and then sold it and still retained his good equity stake at a much like higher valuation. So he could have made his bag. The investor wouldn't have had the return on investment they thought they would get, but I don't know. Maybe every young founder is out for himself. Maybe if you want to raise, if you raise VC and you know you can get to an exit, like even if it's not the exit your investors want, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> Take that with a grain of salt, please. Uh, I wonder, so I was reading this article by one of the Sequoia legends, and one of the things he talks about when it comes to raising VC money or building a business is what percent of the Fortune 2000 can you go capture? Mm. Because that actually dictates the cap or the ceiling of your business. And I thought right. that was a really interesting lens. Can you go work with all the premier enterprises in your space? There's actually one that's interesting. You've heard of uh, Scale AI, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. The, youngest billionaire, the youngest billionaire, or at least he was in the world, Alexander Wang. He was like 25 when he got on the cover of Forbes. And essentially what he did was build a repository of data in the AI space, and he was no different than an online service. He wasn't building a tech company. He was hiring Nigerians for a dollar an hour Fuck. to tag images and data and then create smart AI that he could then give to companies and give them people to, like, train their company's data. Like, it was literally an agency, and they raised hundreds of millions, and now they're Yeah, I mean, millions. it's like exploitation to the highest degree, though. But that's what I find was interesting. Like, this guy was on the cover of Forbes. Like, he was doing huge things, and it was like, this is the next big AI company. It was literally a, a human capital slave shop. It brings up an interesting point because you mentioned WeWork, you mentioned you're mentioning scale AI, and it's all around the narrative that these guys played all into, around the narrative. right? It's all around the narrative. You can take something so boring and so basic and make it sound way cooler, and people buy into that hype, right? Now you come with the extreme valuations, and now the finances don't make any sense. But it's funny how there's this innate belief that we love to be told stories. And we love to believe in something bigger. We like to dream bigger and how easily people can be swayed or bought in yeah. to that kind of narrative. That's, I think that I could get, I could make any business sexy. Like I could package up any company. I don't give a shit what it is. Fucking productizing horse manure into a microbe. Like, <laughs> like, dude, I can fucking give this pitch to like change the world. Right. I think the storytelling goes into a bigger theme, which is how well can you sell? If there was one specific thing I wish I had learned while I was in college was the ability to go sell because it is the most important skill that you could possibly have. And I'll tell you why. If you can sell, you will never go hungry. You can you need to be able to sell yourself when it comes to bringing on potential employees. Right. You need to be able to sell them on a bigger, bigger vision, a bigger idea. Exactly. You need to be able to sell customers on why this product is needed, why it's it's something they, they can't go without. You have to be able to sell investors. They have to buy into your dream and your bigger vision, right? Yeah. And I think you can go find a really a lot of really talented product people and you can find a, a lot of really talented people on the fulfillment side or all of these other support areas, but you need to be able to sell. And I think that if you can't do that, that's something that 
is always going to be an anchor. I'm not saying you can't pull your pull it off because you can always hire really talented salespeople around you who can maybe even if it's your co-founder who's really good at sales and they can kind of make up for that aspect. But if you're leading a company or building a company, one of the initial co-founders or uh, founding members of the team has to be able to sell the idea and the vision yeah. um, to the, the the stakeholders involved. I don't refute that sales is the most important skill for any young entrepreneur. I remember in the earlier days of our future when we were doing brand deals and pitching for ads, yeah. I didn't be like, hey, I'm Michael Zakhand. Uh, I'm a business content creator. I get X many views. I said, my name is Michael Zakhand. I am the co-founder and CEO of Our Future. We're building the biggest Gen Z media company in the business category. We do X millions of views per month. We are the leading brand safe destination for companies to deploy spend on TikTok. And you should totally come in with us because we've already worked with X, Y, and Z brand, right? That was an amazing pitch for what we were doing. We were competing with regular individuals making videos. However, by positioning ourselves as a media company and making ourselves sound more legitimate, we we're able to get more media dollars and more premium advertisers than our competition. So let's dive into our next story. And I think there's a good tie in between B2C and B2B trade-offs and positioning. So this kid's name is Bolin Lee. Bolin comes to the United States at age 13. And his only knowledge of the US before was playing GTA 5. Like this kid was living in a dream world, like driving around sick cars, like parachuting out of planes. He's like really seeing the best of America. Well, for being a Chinese kid, like yeah. under the CCP rule, like that was like incredible. Like the freedom being able to like do whatever you wanted in GTA 5 in this fictional Los Angeles inspired town in the game. That was like his early visions of freedom. And that's kind of like how he kind of blueprinted his life. And the through line is quite clear. So he ends up getting into a school in like North Carolina and he ends up living with host families. He could hardly speak English. What he did to get into his boarding school was he filmed a video of himself talking in like broken English, but it was good enough to be understood. And then instead of trying to speak to these recruiters for schools in America, like high schools in America, he would just show them the video on his laptop and let it play. And that's like how he was able to get them to take a chance on him and like admit him. His first host family like stole his money. The next we were in like a terrible divorce. And he had a, like a really hard time when he was in, in high school. And he actually ended up being really successful. He just brought like the same work ethic that was probably expected of him in a Chinese school. I think he was an average student there. But when he was in the American education system, he rose right to the top. So he ended up going to Duke. Well, it's interesting, right? Because... Not only does he have this immigrant hustle to him, but it was instilled in the very beginning. When you look at the American education system versus the Chinese education system, the way Bolin describes it is that he had to go to school six out of the seven days a week, and he was there for 12 hours. And imagine the pressure that they were putting on these students. So what would happen is whenever they would take tests, they would post the scores and everyone's name associated to it out in the main lobby area for everyone to see. Imagine as a young person, what kind of drive or fire that I may put in your stomach, right? That could be a, a nervous, you know, thing that you're like, oh my God, like I'm not going to score well or like I have to score really well because I don't want my peers to make fun of me. Or it can bring out this other competitive side with you, which is I'm going to beat everybody in this classroom. No one yeah. is going to beat me, right? Bro, if I'm coming from another country into an American high school, dude, I am mopping the floor with those kids, bro. <laughs> so he started at Duke. He was like a freshman in high school. And like a lot of young entrepreneurs, they have a great vision. They know how to sell, but they don't know how to code. So here's how he found his coders. It's a really interesting strategy. He decided to put out a post 
like in the engineering school's Facebook group saying, hey, free dinner at this five-star hotel. All you need to be is an engineer who understands iOS development to show up. And he ends up having like 50 kids pull up. <laughs> so he literally gets his pick of the litter. Like I am building, they already told him he was building a fintech company and then he got to be able to select out the right founder, right? So he pivots from the teen debit card idea and ends up going with this financial literacy idea wherein he is going to sell data to banks and he's going to pay people to learn about financial literacy. And I think what's really interesting is before he made this pivot, he actually met a founder called, um, I think it was Scott Ogle, who had started a company called Sageworks and he was CEO and he sold software to tons of different banks. So he really intimately knew the industry and Bolin was able to convince him of his talents and was able to get Scott to take a chance on him. And Scott ends up giving him a hundred grand and Bolin now has a hundred grand in his bank. So now he's able to hire engineers, right? And the guy still invested, even though he thought the debit card idea was stupid. He thought banks needed a turnkey solution. He was like, these banks don't have time to develop their own teen debit card. They want to fuck around with that. What they'd rather have is just something that could be given to them and they can pay for. And that's exactly what they pivoted to with Zogo. Yeah, look, I think it's really difficult to get the business idea or the concept right the very first time. Even the most legendary companies you listen to, you hear about, they had to go through some pivot or some variation, right? But this teen debit card idea for international students or international people um, was a great foray, right? Because when you think about it, it got him into the space of fintech. It was something he was able to identify that he could see himself working in. And I think the reason he was able to get into fintech or why he was interested is Bolin wanted to be an investment banker, too. That was mm. kind of his aspiration when he had moved was he was going to work in the banking and, and fintech space. So, again, Scott decides, hey, I don't like this idea, but you, my friend, are a smart kid. You know, maybe you need some tough love and some guidance here, yeah. but I'm a bet on the guy, right? And Bolin took it. And you know why he took it? Because it's not so bad to take some chips off the table. He yeah. made himself secure. I think he got $100,000, right? Yeah, he bought a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> he did buy it. I would not encourage everyone to go buy, you know, the car of their uh, their dreams when you get your first, you know, lump sum of cash. But I did. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this guy. <laughs> but Bolin did. Okay, so he got a hundred thousand bucks. I think he spent thirty grand on a Porsche, um, but it made him feel secure, right? He didn't need to go ask his family back in China for money. He could actually go build out this idea. So he's got seventy thousand dollars. He sold a minority stake in his business. And again, one might listen to this and think you have to understand there's a trade-off. Sometimes you have to make what may seem like the irrational decision in the short term to set yourself up long term. Had he not been able to get that hundred grand in the beginning, do you think he no. would have actually been positioned to go build that business? He's way too, he'd probably be stuck trying to do some student job in the cafeteria or something, right? Yeah. Just to make ends meet. Yeah. I mean, what a unique opportunity. And the, the way he was able to pitch Scott and like get him to believe in him. Yeah. All these young founders we talk about have that ability to get an adult to like latch onto them and be like, I want to live vicariously through you. And the ability to earn a mentor by having an interesting project. And what's super funny is Scott ended up just like deciding to work for Bolin. So he's got this 40, 50 year old guy who was the CEO of a major software provider to banks coming into his little office in North Carolina every day to like grind and sell shit to banks. Well, look, at the same time, like 
it goes to show that he found the right person. Most people wouldn't do that. Like Scott was truly invested in this. Yeah. And he made him feel young again. I think if you can try and like yeah. the spark to get an older guy to feel like he's part of a startup again, that's probably like a smart strategy to get buy-in from someone who has experience. Exactly. They have to be bought in. Yeah. But I think the genius here is that he got a stakeholder or a strategic aligned with him very, very early because banks, healthcare, and so many other industries are extremely regulated, right? You have to have years of experience, you have to have years of connections, and you have to know all of the right things to say and understand all of the industry lingo. And what a great way to have someone who can kind of hold your hand and guide you through the process, right? And Scott, tell you the things you don't want to hear. Exactly. You would shit on his idea all the time, and he's the one that kind of forced him to pivot. Well, look at what, as young people, this is what we do, right? We have an idea. And who do we go tell about this idea? We go tell our friends. Our friends don't know any better than us. Like, they're in the same college classes as us, and they're doing the same exact things. They were like, oh, yeah, sounds cool. Like, you Love know, good it. luck. Yeah, Godspeed. I would totally pay for that. Exactly. And you ask them to pay for it, and they don't. Well, also, it's just like they're not the target customer, right? No. And you have to go find someone who either understands the space, has built a company in this space, or is a buyer of your product and service and have them be – just very candid and ruthlessly honest with you about whether or not your product is something they would actually need or is it just the cool idea on paper that doesn't actually bring real value into the real world? I think it also a mistake that young entrepreneurs, not to get too off topic, another mistake that young entrepreneurs make is they try and get a mentor before they have a project that's worthy of a mentor's time. Mm. If you want a mentor in life and to help you in business, you need to have a really good thesis around an idea and be really bought in. And that is what's going to attract the mentor. It's not going to be you just being lost in the universe, having no idea what to do. Will you help me? Give me advice. No. Like, no one can tell you what to do and what business to build. You have to be doing something interesting and use that to get the attention of a mentor who can then push you in the right direction. In Bolin's case, he pushed him to do Zogo. So let's talk about this idea, right? It was an app that gave gamified financial literacy. So I got to learn about credit and lending and interest rates while I was getting paid cash. And I think whenever you do a comp company where you're getting paid to like for free, naturally like people come. Originally, he was just reaching out to people in the local Durham, North Carolina area, and he'd signed up a credit union in the local area and was trying to get kind of these customers funneled into that credit union. But eventually, it like spread pretty fast, like around the country, and he was end up with this kind of aggregate data set of all these sort sort of financial people learning. But the data was what, what was valuable about it. So it was this really interesting B to C play gamification, sexy, cool little app, pineapple logos. But on the back end was this thriving B2B banking business. Well, you have to recognize he flipped the entire business model on its head. What he recognized is that parents would give their kids an allowance to go learn, right? It was what is the incentive to make these kids go learn is like, hey, I'm just going to give them some money. They can go do whatever they want. So he looked at this as a chessboard, right? And he understood that he could effectively make the banks the parents in this case. And what does that mean? So he could get the banks to pay for the kids to learn. And in exchange, what do they get? They get this really important data on how these kids are making financial decisions, right? Um, how do they think about uh, the first loan they want to buy a house, right? How 
how can how do they think about other spending decisions and just understanding young people's uh, purchasing behavior? And then they can go create products and offers around that. And that's how he did that and show that value. How he got clients was he went to financial technology conventions. Yeah. And he found ways to present. There was one where he had to pay $7,500 to become a speaker, but it was in front of a bunch of bank executives. So if there's a price tag on getting into the right room, it's probably worth it. Like, yeah. that was like 7% of his entire raise at that point. And he made the bet and he went on stage and he rocked it. And he got a bunch of banks being like, oh, like, I want this, I want this. Because not only was it Gen Z, it was financial literacy. And this is a topic of importance for so many banks. It's even so as inscribed in the regulatory perspective of, of these companies, right? There are requirements that banks need to be making investments in financial literacy. And this point of paying $7,500 to get access to the right rooms and sales channels also goes to Boland's perspective that paying for information is worth every dollar and cent. So paying to get in front of the right audience worth every dollar and cent. So is paying for the right information. He found a contact at a company that was somewhat of a competitor run by old heads. And the guy was disillusioned on it. And he'd pay him $1,000 an hour to give him updates on how the market was moving and what the regulatory requirements were and how he could access capital from banks that was being allocated to certain causes. In his case, it was financial literacy. So it was less that this data is like, I don't think this data is even worth that much to banks. Just like some kids playing games and like whatever. I bet it's more important than you might think. I bet... Where else are they going to get this information from? Like, here's the thing, right? Like, if you look at the way information is provided in this space, they're like very boring technical publications and newsletters, right? right. Like, you're not going to get a kid to voluntarily just give up that info. This was a great way to kind of trick them into it, which was, hey, I see how Robinhood and so um, how all these other apps have gamified the process. We're going to make this really fun. We're going to put it under this uh, illusion of pineapples, right? And so you, every time you get a question right or you submit this information, you get a bunch of pineapples. Woo and then I can, use, I can use these pineapples to redeem gift cards and, like, boom, something of value. Like, hey. yeah, like, yeah. I'll tell you when I'm about to go buy a house. I don't care. Like, you know, I just paid for, you know, my next meal at Chick-fil-A or some shit. Hey. Like, it doesn't really matter, hey. right? Now it's fun. Um, and so I think that's something he took advantage of. But to your point, he had to get into the right rooms. And that's where $7,500 as a college student may sound like a lot of money, especially when you don't have a business that's making a lot of money yet. But if you can take advantage of it and really give it your all, it could be the thing that totally tra changes your trajectory. And I think that's ultimately what happened because as shortly after he launched the business and they were getting some initial traction, COVID happened. And I think he had to go back to China um, and like that pretty much put the company dead in its tracks. Like they just had to stop everything because he was no longer here. But what ended up happening is that one of the banks remembered Bolin from the conference and gave him $200,000. They had $200,000 to spend. And so they gave him a call and they were like, we want to spend this with Zogo because I think this is really cool. And they remembered his presentation. They remembered his, his presentation. You never know when you're going to get that phone call that could change your life. Yeah, just getting in the right room and making an impact. Like it's not going to be lost on anyone. There's a chance it might resurface. Yeah. And I think with Bolin, what else was like really interesting is he started really small, which was Here's the here's another misconception a lot of young early first time founders would do, which is 
they would try to go hit up the behemoths in their space. If I'm going to go work for a, if I'm going to go build a fintech company, I want to work with Amex. I want to work with JP Morgan Chase. And so their entire time is spent trying to sell to those companies. But you have to recognize that those are the beasts you go for at the end. They yeah. are not at the beginning of the journey. The end of the race. You have to go really small. You have to start local. And that's what he did. He went to the small credit unions in North Carolina. He got them to buy in. Yeah. He built up a shit ton of case studies. So when that opportunity came to go pitch American Express to go do a deal, he had so much data and so much case studies. And he was able to... Uh, test and iterate and really fine-tune the process that when the opportunity came, he was ready to go. Yeah. Uh, one other thing is how he structured his revenue model and that yeah. he would have companies pay him three years in advance, right? And that was like more from his mentality of taking chips off the table. Like he was getting 200 grand, I think, a package and he was getting that upfront for three years. And that significantly de-risked the business because it also meant that he could pivot into another idea had he needed to, right? He had the flexibility and he had that cash in the bank. So it's this conservative mindset that he had that I think set him up really, really well to just lock in and take chips off the table and position himself as best as possible for a win. I think that works for a time. That kind of business model is great in the beginning because you've now secured your revenue for the next few years. Mm -hmm. It is, hey, we know that this is at least has a solid foundation, but that model does not work in the long term. And the reason why is you've essentially capped your revenue, right? Now you've effectively said, if you go sell American Express on a deal for three years, understand that they are one of the biggest, if not the biggest player in his space, and they're locked for three years. So he just found the customer with the deepest pockets in the space, and he's effectively said, I can't charge or increase my revenue like no one's going to pay more than american express will like let's be real another thing to learn is like his timing on the market right like he had people reach out to him to buy zogo i think in like 2021 at like the height of like the fintech boom or post covid and none of them really like seemed right and he he also just knew the value of what he was building like this guy fully believed his business was worth multiples 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 more in revenue than he was doing in the software level valuations and he stuck to that and when two billionaires from Austin approached him to buy the business and like try and get their foot in the door in the financial literacy world, he didn't budge. He was he negotiated really, really well. In some cases, it makes sense to get strung out and just get the win. Like if you think acquisition is the best opportunity, then do it and just like deal with the shit and do it for months or whatever. But in Boland's case, like he had all that confidence and gusto of like, I can totally keep scaling. Like we got to X million this year. We're going to get to X million the next year. But what he did was just like set his number and another thing is he just felt like it was the right fit. He met with these billionaires and he was like in their house and there was like Da Vinci paintings around and he was like mesmerized and they ended up talking for like eight hours all night. And they only talked for like two hours out of the eight about Zogo. A lot of it comes down to the soft stuff. It is, do I actually like this person yeah. and can I manage to spend several hours with them? That's, it's really just a test. Are you someone they want to bring into their family? Is this someone that they want to be associated with? Or are you just like this slimy kind of schemey character that's just going to take this money and then will be an embarrassment to the company later on. So it's, it's almost vetting. That's really what it is in the early stages of an acquisition talk. We're not allowed to say it, but he made a lot of money. I've never met someone at our age who's made more money self-made than him. He like, deserves I'm, it, man. And we hang out with a lot of successful young founders. We talk about them on our podcast. None of them come close to Bolin. 
I think he talked to us. Well, for one, he told us the story of how he actually did buy that Ferrari, which I just think was a beautiful cherry on top to this story. Like Bolin's story is probably one of the best I've ever heard from a young founder. So I'm really stoked that I got to meet him. We got to talk about him. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Those are some awesome stories today. Please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you love the show. Remember, you can DM me, Michael, at Michael Sikand on Twitter. Simi is underscore Simi underscore. And yeah, if you guys want to reach out or just tell us about what businesses you're working on, we'd love to talk about them. Or if you know any other kids who've built massive businesses that are worth discussing. And please just give us all the feedback that you have. I mean, we're learning. We're figuring this out as we go. And so if there's things you don't like, if there's things you really like, we should double down on. Let us know. Um, and hopefully we can make those changes in, in the near future here. Young killers depart. Peace out, everybody. Stay frosty. Stay frosty.